Hey, this is Danny Brown with The Deal. Our next guest, Chris Rising, is an incredibly accomplished real estate owner and operator. Their company, Rising Realty, which he co-founded with his father, uh, owns and operates over 5 million square feet of Class A office buildings and retail throughout downtown LA and the United States. He's at the epicenter of this coronavirus in terms of tenants, and landowner, landlords, and banks, and what's going on. Uh, he's been mentored by some of the legends in the business, his dad, and McGuire, Crochefield, and Jim Travers. So he's really giving us some, uh, some insight and some wisdom. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do, and we'll talk to you soon. Good morning, everybody. Welcome, Chris Rising, to The Deal with Danny Brown. Chris, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Are you safe and healthy? Uh, doing, doing wonderful, thanks. You know, our, our, our kids are figuring out how to, how to do this home quarantine. My wife, uh, who works at Gensler, uh, is working from one part of the house, and, I, and I've been relegated to the kitchen. Uh, so, but it's, it's working out okay. That's okay. We're, we're safe you- and healthy. You got to make sure though before you open the refrigerator, you got to bust out twenty push-ups each time, (laughs) (laughs) just like you did at Duke, right? That's right. Back in the day. (laughs) Yeah. So I got to give you a shout out, a college football player at Duke. Major props. Uh, Jim Travers says hello. So I'll I'll say and I'll I'll bleep out anything else he said, but he says says his best. (laughs) But I wanted to get you on today, uh, give people some context. You uh, own and operate a ton of Class A office buildings downtown L.A. and through the United States. You've been in this game and seen many cycles up and down for decades. We've now entered this new normal of coronavirus. Why don't you, before we get into your your personal story, why don't you just give us a little update or a big update on what is really happening now with tenants, landlords, lenders on the commercial side? And if you could speak to that just to give us an idea of what's happening in the real world. Well, the real world is very scary. Um, it is. It, it, I, I, I'd love to give a lot of green shoots and and uh, optimism out there, but look, the entire economy is shut down. This is a forced taking. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. Uh, it's for our for our all our health, health, but this is a forced taking of everything for everybody. We're not allowed to leave our house. We're not uh, homes. We're not allowed to earn a living. We're not allowed to. Um, to, to really do anything. And so that is dramatic, very dramatic. And I think what's happening right now is we're about a month in. I think people have gone from uh, panic and fear to um, a great trust or hope. I hope it's a trust that the government is going to fund the way they, they, that they said they would. Um, I have, we've been approved for a PPP loan, um, uh, we've encouraged every tenant of ours to go for a PPP loan because this really is a, a grand taking and, um, and, um, we haven't gotten it, the money yet, but we've gotten approved. And I think people right now are saying, okay, look, if, if, if we do our end of the bargain, which is to stay home and stay safe, the government will basically say, take the second quarter of the year or half of March and 
uh, April, May, and June and just say, we're going to fund it. And uh, we'll start again in July. And that's basically what we see happening. Um, the thing about the PPP loan is it allows people to get their salary. So they should be able to pay their mortgage. They should be able to pay their rent. And it gives businesses money to pay their, their, their commercial mortgages uh, or their commercial uh, leases. So, you know, in the, what we've seen here, we're at April 10th and we're looking at uh, what we've received in rent across our 5 million square feet. And we have about 85%, maybe 82 to 85% of our tenants paid. And when you really drill down into that, it's the ones you'd expect who are having the most trouble. It's the sandwich restaurants. It's the, it's the sundry shops. It's the, it's the kind of retail around office that really demands that there's a huge office population. Yes. All of, all of our buildings are open. Um, you know, it's not our call to say what's an essential business or not. So I am so appreciative to our security people, our security people, our property managers, our engineers, our janitors, the parking attendants who, who, are, who are there, because um, they're at the front line. And um, they, you know, we have uh, buildings that, that have uh, healthcare workers in them. We have um, a lot of things going on. And, and, and I will also say that the construction side is still open and we are still doing uh, TIs and, and uh, uh, following all the rules uh, that give the city of LA a lot of credit. They come by our job sites all the time. And, you know, we fortunately all of our contractors uh, are very professional about it, keeping people six feet apart, no more than ten people on a work site. So there is some yeah. life, um, but I think we're all we need to do what's right for our for the global community, which is to get rid of this virus. And I think the government's basically going to say we average about five trillion dollars a quarter in GDP um, in the United States, and they're basically going to give four trillion of that back to us. Wow. Just, 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 just so we can start over in July. And, uh, my, my biggest concern, um, is cause I know how I'm feeling. I bet you you're feeling the same way, which is, I am just itching to get back out there. Yeah. My biggest concern is we do it too early. So we, yeah, can't. I mean, I want to be safe and be careful of course first, but yeah, we're all dying to get back to work to do what we do and support our families and connect. So let me ask you about these PPP loans. Are these loans, are these going to be deferred payments? Or are these going to be forgiven loans or is it dependent? Well, okay. So the concept really is that they are loans that at least half will be forgivable. Um, my personal opinion is that is as long as you follow the rules and you do not terminate people and it's a little murky, uh, um, exactly how the rules are going to be defined. Can you hire people back within a certain amount of time? How far back does it go? Does it go to February? Yeah. But the concept really, I think, is that these will be forgivable loans eventually. Um, and so a lot of people, I think, at first were like, do I want to really want to take on more debt? Right. And my view and our company's view is, look, um, we can't be left pulling the bag. Um, you know, our as our revenue goes down, because our business is really a percentage of the revenue that comes in in our building. So as that revenue goes down, you know, I, I have really no choice but to, to furlough or fire people if I don't have the money to pay them because it's coming from our tenants. Um, and so we, we, we felt strongly that we were going to participate and we have. Um, I'll tell you, and this is uh, probably not a surprise to any of your audience who runs a small business, the big banks have just been terrible with this. And wow, I think the result of um, all the regulation in the last cycle, you didn't want to be with a small business bank because of the threat of them going under. going under. So you went to all the big banks, the Wells Fargo, the B of A's and those. And then now in this cycle, 
you know, we did, we do all of our business with Wells Fargo. We, I should say we used to, um, <laughs> oh, no. all of our business with Wells Fargo and we can't get a PPP loan through them. We're yeah. all of our deposits there, all of our payroll. And they didn't bother to call and tell me on Friday, we could go Friday. My CFO, my, my head of finance was staring at her computer. Okay. When's the portal going to open? Didn't open on Friday, Saturday up into the banking hours. Didn't open. Guess what? They opened it Saturday evening, and by Sunday evening, they closed it. Oh, wow. And I called everybody at that bank and said, how can you do this to us? We, we're a good customer. And all I got was, sorry, sorry, sorry. Then they reopened up at Wells, and she was on uh, two days ago. They We got a call saying, hey, if you get on at 1, it'll be open. She was on there from 1 until 6 o'clock, hitting refresh, hitting refresh. And when it finally opened, it was just an expression of interest. So, you know, yeah. fortunately through my relationships at YPO and, and others, I got recommendations uh, to go to other banks and we were approved yesterday for, for ours and, uh, and we're really excited and uh, looking at, we're going to totally change the way we do business. We're going to, uh, we're going to spread our relationship system, smaller banks and spread it around more. And, and because boy, this has been tough, really tough and scary. I mean, what was really scary to me was, you know, we have enough cash where we're going to be okay in the short term. But it's just what happens over if it becomes two months and three months. That's why we really felt it was important to do this. So give us some uh, context. How many employees are involved with all your buildings? How many buildings? Is it 5 million square feet? 5 million square feet. Well, you know, we the way we run the business is we have, uh, we do not, um, own on engineering our parking our janitorial or our security so those are all through companies like abm so um it's they're kind of white label they're outsourced but our company is 34 people and it's a mix of accountants acquisitions people asset managers and property managers and you know we're pretty much a family and you know my, we, we've gone through every scenario in terms of salary reduction how we're going to deal with this um you know, as I said, we do have some good, uh, we have money on our balance sheet, but we're not going to be left uh, fighting a battle with, with arm, one arm behind our back. Right. And you are one of the fortunate companies. You've run a very successful, conservative uh, business for a long time. I mean, a lot of businesses are on the edge going into this. You guys are not. Uh, so I, that's curious to see what's going to happen to those companies. But uh, other than the 34 people, I got to think in 5,000, uh, 5 million square feet, the ancillary of jobs, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of jobs of people that are, you guys are supporting is uh, significant. It is. And I, and that's one of the things we try to remind our tenants, um, you know, uh, uh, a lease is not a, an option to pay. A lease is a commitment. It's a legal commitment to pay. Sure. And I understand that things are tough, but when, when tenants choose not to pay, that translates down and then we can't pay people on, on our job sites at our projects. Yeah. And so it just trickles all the way, trickles. all the way down. And, you know, it's, I, I've heard some horrible stories and, and of how sad it is to hear about businesses that are struggling, but there are, government programs available and, and people should access them. Cause as I said, I, th I think we're just going to say the second quarter of 2020 is just a wash, a wash. I mean, it's, it's interesting. A, a few months ago, um, moderate conservative Democrats and, and every Republican I knew, um, uh, was so concerned about Bernie Sanders being elected president and look where we are. I mean, yeah. we, we go through this crisis and that's where we are. And that's, What's government supposed to do, by the way? That's why we have government in these kind of crises to step up.
Yeah, the safety. Now, well, how would you compare this? I know we're early on and it's, you know, or a month in. How would you compare this to the 2008, 2009, uh, you know, risk great recession where it was systemic bank situation? This is a health crisis, kind of more like a natural disaster, so to speak, on a large scale. But how would you compare it? You know, the, what similarities or differences? Well, let me say this, you know, I'm fortunate to have a close relationship with my father, who's um, going to be turning 80 this year. He's seen every recession since, yeah, the, since, yeah, since the 70s. I've seen, um, I was got, I got out of college in 91, um, and that's when um, the real estate industry had taken a huge dive from like 90, 90 91 to 95. So I saw, saw it then. Um, I was there for the tech wreck. I was there for 9-11. Uh, I was there for the for the global recession, uh, the financial crisis, and they all share certain things. <clears throat> Number one, the fear that everything you've worked for is gone in a in just a snap of your fingers. Um, they all they share the drumbeat of different economic economists' theory on how you deal with uh, a crisis. Um, and th they all share this, this genuine uneasiness, this malaise is, I remember, uh, Jimmy Carter talked about in the seventies, but this malaise it, 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 all, all there where this is different and is that there isn't, um, a finger you can point at businesses. We may want to talk about what government should or shouldn't have done. That's, that's not for, for, for us to talk about right now. We, we need to get through this crisis. But there, there's no poster child of egregious behavior here. And I think when the government says you cannot leave your home, it's something we've never experienced before. Sure. Um, and so I think that we should have the government bailouts, even though I was watching CNBC yesterday and uh, the gentleman from Social Capital who thinks the airline should just go under. And, and uh, I don't agree with him. Um, and I don't have much empathy for... Um, the billionaires losing money either, but um, I, I just don't think, I think if we point fingers right now, we're never going to get back to normal. So let's just absorb it all as a globe, as a, as a country. I think I'm very, um, I'm an optimist by nature, but I'm pretty pessimistic on how this, uh, I don't believe it'll be a V. I don't even believe it'll be a U. I think, I think we'll get a lot of money into the system and then we won't have any other levers to pull when we get back to work. And it's just going to be people showing up every day and going to work and, and, and working hard. I don't think we'll have um, a big boom after this for a while. I think it's going to take a long time for people to uh, feel comfortable coming back to work. I think it's going to take a long time for generations to uh, get over the idea that they were almost left with nothing. And um, so I'm a little pessimistic on the back end, uh, but I'm really optimistic about when I see these frontline workers and these doctors and, you know, hopefully this will drive our society back to um, uh, believing that science really does matter and facts matter. Yes, that's, that's one of the silver linings. I also think a silver lining is the community factor that people are realizing that we're all tied together. You're not just on an Island by yourself and to respect and appreciate these first responders and the people that are out here every day uh, under normal circumstances, helping us out. So uh, I, I think that's, that's a lesson that we all need to take seriously. So are you feeling that this will turn into sort of the lost decade? Similar to Japan? Uh, I'm, 
I'm a little concerned. Um, that's for sure. I, I think that this would go uh, one of a couple ways, but I think, look, if you look back at the, at the great depression, you know, the 1920s, um, everything was great, but there wasn't a ton of innovation. The 1930s was a horrible, horrible decade, but there was tons of innovation. And so what my hope is, and my, uh, that would get us out of a decade of, of, of just malaise and, and such is innovation. Um, and thinking about things differently. And, right. you know, I think it's going to accelerate a lot of things. Um, I think that if you do anything that is a repeatable, predictable task, this is going to just force AI and software to deal with it. And those jobs are going to go away. Um, uh, and so it's just going to speed that up. And the question is what, what new things come on? There's always new things, new jobs. I mean, uh, who would have thought, uh, uh, you know, if you could teach guitar to someone a thousand miles away, uh, and you can now via yeah. zoom and get paid for that service. So I think there's lots of jobs. Yeah. yeah. Lots of jobs are going to come out of it. And that, that's my hope that if there's any green shoots out of it is that we're going to have so much innovation. I think we're gonna have a ton of innovation around life science. I think this just showed how, in a, how ill prepared we were to deal with um, something like this, uh, this pandemic. And I think people are going to be thinking ahead. So those are some things I think, uh, could be good, good things that come out of it. But right now we just gotta, we just gotta get rid of this virus. And, and that's, that's the number one thing. Everything else is just kind of hopes. Yeah. You think from what you're hearing and reading and seeing that we will be out of this shelter in another 30 days or 60 days or you think, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I, I will, I will, uh, refrain from making any predictions but uh, what i would say is um i think a lot of people are becoming epidemiologists amateur epidemiologists and trying to make that prediction yeah i think every everything i've heard from the city and from the state is we can expect to be in lockdown through may so yeah yeah, yeah it's seeming that way all right well look that's enough the coronavirus you're not a scientist i'm not a scientist <laughs> let's get into some fun stuff some positive stuff let's talk about chris rising you've been in this business uh, for decades your father's has been in this business forever he's a legend in the business why don't we go back you grew up in la tell us a little bit about where you went to school uh yeah. how you got into real estate were you a lawyer first i was but uh, I, I had a little securitist route into real estate i i grew up in glendale um my dad moved to glendale in 1954. um his father was the head engineer for what was the statler hotel which we all now know as what was torn down and then rebuilt as the Korean Airlines building. Okay. Um, and uh, my father uh, went to Glendale High School and went to UCLA on a football scholarship and then UCLA nice. Law School. And he started his career uh, as a summer intern at O'Melveny and Myers in the building we now own, which is the Trust Building on 4th and Spring. And that's wow. in 1966 where he did his summer. And his mentor there was the former uh, Secretary of State Ward Christopher, which is why my name is Christopher, because he was my dad's mentor. And um, we, we grew up in Glendale, and I, I have fond memories. One of my dad's, uh, my dad was very heavily involved in Democratic politics. He was uh, uh, John Tunney uh, at 27 years old. My dad was John Tunney's uh, campaign manager for the Senate in California, which John won. John was the son of the boxer Gene Tunney. And then in 1973, he was, he was the chairman of Tom Bradley's campaign for mayor. And uh, Tom became the first African-American mayor of a major U.S. city. 
And, um, and during all that time, he was also working, started to work in real estate. His first job, a uh, really senior job in real estate was taking over Cota de Casa, which was the, uh, as a result of the Pennsylvania Railroad bankruptcy, that was pulled out um, and he ran Cota de Casa and Cota was uh, Portuguese for land of the hunt. And I remember going to uh, Cota de Casa in the early seventies when it was like you drove and it was just going out to the country and eucalyptus trees. And um, he, he did two things at Cota there. He did, he brought in the Vic Braden's tennis college so that they had a destination. Um, and he did a water deal and an easement that connected Cota de Casa so you could have a freeway access to the five freeway. And because of that, I still blame my dad for the housewives of Orange County. But then I, you know, I, history. <laughs> yeah, I got to watch him do uh, in this later in the seventies, do a lot of deals in Florida, condo conversions and such. And then in the early eighties, he became partners with Rob McGuire and Jim Thomas. Right. Um, and so I pretty much my whole life watched real estate. And I, what I saw was this, um, uh, the way real estate development get done was much like a political campaign and much like you do a movie. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really, you're putting all these pieces together. You're not doing one specialty. And so I always found that interesting. And actually early on, uh, when I got out of college, I was much more interested in the movie business and yeah. either being an actor or a producer. And I, I think growing up in Southern California, it's hard not to be, yeah, he um, looks. You should be an actor. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, my looks and maybe forty pounds off. But uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the uh, I was going to say my looks and forty pounds off, and I might be able to play the fat guy in a, in a movie. Is what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> the um, but you know what happened was I I my first job. Uh, so I went to Duke University. I uh, played football for Steve Spurrier. Uh, football was my entire life. I started a middle linebacker. Um, we won the conference in 1989, uh, played a game. And, and really up until then, I thought football was going to be my career as a player and then as a coach or something. I had a really uh, tough junior year with my shoulder dislocating a lot. But, you know, I, I, I thought there was some, you know, I love football. That was what I was going to do. Uh, but it didn't happen because I got really injured. And then I started to realize that, I wanted to be a college coach. I was putting my whole career on 18 to 19 year old young men. And I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Yeah. And I hadn't really thought about how you could be a pro coach. But what I did was I came back and I taught at Loyola high school, which was my alma mater. Awesome. And I got to coach football and I kind of got that bug out of me. And I was looking around, what should I do? And because it was 1993, right in the middle of a recession, going to law school sounded like a good, good idea. So I went to law school and then I just kind of drifted into real estate and uh did about a year with some great mentors but you know being a lawyer was just not for me being a lawyer it takes a lot of discipline um to read documents carefully and I, you know i did that but i didn't i wasn't passionate about it um and so i got very lucky and that um john cushman um had a company at the time called cushman realty corporation and uh he had left cnw on april 1st 1978 started it and this was 1997 or eight, 1998, I think. And he had always had a role where he'd hire a young lawyer that would kind of be his right hand and would write letters and memos and all that kind of stuff. And Lynn Williams is one of the great brokers uh, in the country. 
uh, had just left doing that and went out on her own within Cushman Realty. So I got to work in the office of the president for John Cushman. And in about five or six years, I saw every kind of real estate deal you could possibly see. Yeah. I, um, you know, John and uh, Jim Travers have similar reputations, uh, yeah. work harder than anybody. And, um, you know, as a John, uh, is a hundred. Yeah. John, uh, John works, uh, 105% effectively, but he works 190%. <laughs> so there's a lot of ineffectual that gets him to being very successful because he just yeah. pushes and pushes. And, and, um, and so I learned a lot. And what I learned is, is that doing real estate deals is about creativity. It's about passion and about determination. And it's about good ideas. The good ideas are what you can get money for and you can make things happen. So, um, I've really enjoyed it. I, in 2003, I, uh, Cushman Realty merged with Cushman Wakefield and it became this big firm. And I said, ah, you know, uh, you know, I've got five clients. If I can just keep one, I can live off that for a year. I want to go do something else. And I started thinking I'd just do some brokerage deals and then maybe find a building to buy. And that's what happened. I got very lucky and ran into a broker who I knew very well, who'd been in the business for a long time, said, Hey, I'm looking to buy a building. Uh, took the idea to Oscar De La Hoya, who we had done some work with at Cushman Realty. Um, said, Oscar, would you be interested in buying 626 Wilshire? And um, that was my first real estate deal in 2003 is, is we bought 626 Wilshire from uh, Michael Barker, uh, Barker Pacific Group. I had, never done, I had never done property management and I was a little concerned about that. So right when we were about getting near the end, Michael said, what if I stay in? I do the property management, you do the leasing, Oscar can be the equity. And we've owned that building since uh, 2003. Now, the lesson I learned was I should have learned more about property management because since 2003, we got the building leased and there hasn't been many leasing fees, but Michael's kept the property management fees since 2003. So well, Michael's <laughs> compounding fees. <laughs> yes. So, uh, but that's, that's all right. It was, uh, Michael's a good friend and partner and mentor and uh, Barker is, Michael Barker is, but that's really how it started. It just started with an idea. And I, you know, what I keep telling my team right now is this will probably be the best buying opportunity in our lives. So we can sit back and lick our wounds and say, it's going to be hard to get things done. So let's do nothing. Or we can wake up every day and work our asses off to find deals. Cause that's the currency right now. Love that. And I mean, and I'll tell you, I, um, I spend 90% of my day trying to deal with the asset management stuff going on so that we're being good fiduciaries for investors or investors in our company. And, um, but, but using the John Kishman, the other 90%, I spend, <laughs> um, I spend with our team trying to find deals because I, th- this is going to pass this too shall pass. Absolutely. And we have to be ready to present deals that make sense. There will be willing sellers. And there'll be for reasons that are not just because people are um, um, losing all their money or something like that. It'll be because there'll be asset allocation changes. You know, there's a, there's something happening right now that happens in every recession, which is called the denominator effect with, uh, um, with pension funds. So they have their, their huge asset allocation strategy. Think of it as a pie yeah. and, and real estate is 10%, let's say when, when they, when the uh, when their uh, when their money shrinks, that ten becomes a twenty. They're overweight, and by their rules, they have to sell. So that's why there's going to be a lot of opportunities. Is people for no other reason than they just have to rebalance their portfolio based on it being worthless. And and then there's going to be people who say, you know what, I just got too bruised. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. 
Yeah. And, um, and, and uh, to add uh, to, to, uh, to add another 90% of my time, we're also spending a lot of time. We're trying to get in front of uh, LPs and, and people in real estate who, um, where we can do property management and asset management. You know, we spent the last five or seven years really working on uh, what we call impact strategies, but really break down to this uh, health and wellness, uh, social, uh, creating a social environment uh, and, and carbon reduction and, and, and how efficient buildings are. And so we've been raising money. I was in New York March 10th, how fast the world changed uh, presenting because uh, we were raising a $750 million fund on impact strategies. And we had a, we, we have and had a lead commitment and everything was looking great a month ago, but it was all around. Um, I think uh, people cared then and they're going to care more about the, the quality of the air, the light, the water in a building, the fact that it's not belching carbon that I know who I'm in an office building with and we have some common purpose. So I think all of these things are going to be even more important. And so our company is working very hard to get in front of people because that's what's going to create value. That's what has created value and will create value. Yeah, I agree. I think we're seeing a lot of that wellness into our uh, in the residential side as well. And I just think this is going to accelerate all that, uh, all the wellness and being how important all the you know, the, the footprints are, and et cetera. People are going to really be thinking about this after this health crisis. And you've really had some tremendous mentors, some legends, obviously your dad and McGuire and Cushfield and Jim and on and on and on. What is your take on um, mentorship? And do you feel like that's an important thing for executives as they're being groomed and coming up the ranks? Well, I, I believe firmly in personal coaching and coaching. Um, I have, I have a, a personal coach that I meet with once a week. Um, I try very hard to mentor our team and our people. I, I think um, one of the things that I think makes me very confident that work from home, mobile work is going to, is going to be increased and be good, but work from home isn't going to last because how do you mentor someone if you're only looking on zoom every once in a while, it's not going to happen that way. People need the human interaction, but I, here's what I know uh, about lights. Oh, I just lost my light there. So uh, here's what I know about life is that the issues that people dealt with in the Roman empire, the feelings, those kind of things are just as relevant today. Yeah. I really, I read a lot of the Stoics and, um, and, and so having people who've gone through things that you can bounce ideas off of, um, you know, things don't change all that much. The technical side changes. Um, you know, if you grew up in the 60s, 70s writing COBOL uh, code, it's probably not all that relevant. But who knows now because I, we, we're finding out that Connecticut and these other states still use COBOL code. But, but, but that's just a technique, you know, but the, the experiences that people go through, I think mentorship is vital, just vital. And it's, it's the essence of life that's been around since the first people sat around a, a campfire. And, um, and so I'm a huge proponent of, of mentorship, of coaching, personal coaching. I think we need it in our lives. Um, you know, I, I say all the time and my, my partner, Scott McMullen teases me. I said, you know, in a perfect world, I'd get to dress like Bill, Bill uh, Belichick and, and just have the same routine my whole life all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as an athlete, just tell me where to show up, tell yeah. me what to wear, tell me what to show up. And so I try to structure that into my life. Yeah. Study the film, X's and O's, just execute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Bill Belichick life. 
Yes. <laughs> so on that note, what sort of lessons or advice, what would you pass on to your younger self? Knowing what you know now, what you've learned now, what are a couple of key takeaways you'd tell your younger self as you were starting your career that would have helped? Well, well, well uh, I'd start with, and it's kind of maybe a little depressing, is it never gets easier, okay? When you're in the game, you're in the game. And All you don't in. hit yeah, you don't hit some, you know, touchdown, I run through, and everybody loves me forever. It doesn't work that way. So you might as well show up and give it your all. Um, number That'd be number one. Is, is, it, is it just it, it, you got you to gotta work your tail off. You cannot do it with the moves. Anybody uh, over my career, the people who try to do it with the kind of, you know, swanky, I'll do this, blah, 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 it, it doesn't work, and it'll catch up to you. And um, the second thing is, is the people you think are really successful, um, be careful how you judge that because, um, you know, I've seen now my dad at 80 and I've seen people go through their life who I thought were extraordinarily successful people, but they were really bankrupt morally or bankrupt in their relationships. And nobody cares your shit. You can't take it with you. You just can't. Right. And, and, and so really focus on being the whole person and, uh, my dad loves a quote, and I'll quote it here from Warren Christopher that says, a person cannot be truly accomplished unless they help others accomplish. And that's what we really should be doing here. And so what, uh, when I give myself advice, is, I mean, the Jesuit being a man for others is, is something I talk about a lot, and it gives me a lot of pleasure. But I think, I think there's too much when you're young of looking at how people might be perceived as, uh, as successful. And there's too much of uh, Oh, they got some break. I didn't get, yeah. or they're so lucky that this happened. And the, there's too much of that when you're a young person and, yeah. and really what you gotta do is put your head down, get good at some things and then go out and try a bunch of things and fail a bunch. You know, I have failed so many times in my life. I fail every day, you know, and, and people are looking to me for answers. Look, what the, what I am doing is bouncing ideas off my father and my partner, Scott McMullen, and we are trying to figure out ways to solve problems. There is no playbook. And I wish I understood that more when I was younger. When I was younger, I thought, okay, when I hit 35 or when I hit 42, the light's going to go on and life will just be grand. Let's have all the answers. <laughs> yeah, it's not the way it works. And uh, I think the people who are still engaged in their 70s and 80s are, are because they want to, they just want to be in the game. Um, but at some point, you know, you don't want, I mean, my dad still enjoys getting up and going to work and doing all that stuff at, at 80. I, I, I can promise you that will not be me. <laughs> <laughs> what will you be doing? <laughs> Hopefully reading a lot. Uh, writing, um, whether anyone reads it or not, I don't, I don't care. Those are things I enjoy, yeah. um, traveling. I'll tell you the one, uh, one blessing about this time of our family, uh, now is, as I really come to like my routine of going for afternoon walks and, you know, Los Angeles this picture behind me was, uh, is a drone shot of the 110 freeway. There's Dodger downtown. Stadium for downtown. Yeah. And this was from two days ago and it's so beautiful. And, and so, I, you know, for me, a lot of what this has done has made me rethink and think about um, how I want to structure my life going forward. And I think I've gotten a little bit too much on a treadmill of traveling a lot, trying to raise money and do things. And, and I was just beat down. And um, I feel like uh, um, it's helped me reprioritize a bit. Sure, it helps put things in perspective and value the the time with your family and your time at home walking is something that I'm doing all the time with my wife now and 
it's allowed us to hit reset and really reflect on what's important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's so many nuggets here that, you, that I can pull out lessons of focusing and working hard and staying in your lane and not blaming and pointing fingers. These are all such wonderful, timeless lessons that you're sharing. Uh, so I really, really appreciate that. Before we wrap up, any uh, any fun stories, any fun deals, any interesting stories? Could be Jim Travers, Cushfield. <laughs> Cushfield, Okay, so... Uh, so the first time I met, uh, uh, Jim Travers, um, I was working with, uh, as a young lawyer with Michael Meyer and, uh, we were doing a lease negotiation and I, I was at literally at that stage of my career where I was told to show up with a notepad, write everything down. Cause you don't know what's important and just listen. And I remember Michael Meyer started, uh, so, okay, here's what we're going to do. And Jim Travers started with the F word. No, we're going to do it this way. And I was horrified. She's like, oh my. And it wasn't until about 30 minutes into the meeting that I realized, no, that's just the character he plays. That's yeah. just him. And nobody took offense. And I was like, it prepared me very well for when I went to go work for John Cushman. Um, because I was like, oh, okay. There, there, there are these characters in the real estate business. And I, I'll tell you, I think that's one of the things that I, I do miss about real estate, commercial real estate today is there's not as many characters, um, partly because the business has become so institutionalized. Yeah, so um, yeah but there's not, a, I mean, it used to be, you could be a real showman in this business and, and, and it, it was fun to watch from the sideline. But, um, I, can only I think, that, I think, I think that that was it. I think the other, uh, funny story I, I, I will say is, you know, this is a town I, I, I went to Duke, so I get to stay out of this SC UCLA. Right. Um, I'm an SC guy. Uh, yeah. So there's well, a story I'll tell about the, the early 90s or, um, at McGuire and Thomas Partners. There was a, a pretty even mix between UCLA and USC fans, and they always like to play uh, – jokes and so one uh before the uh, friday before the game my dad and uh a bunch i happened to be around it walking in and there was the usc band um playing in the lobby of library tower to to welcome the ucla people in the work on the friday of the game and the way the way they got him back and uh, this wouldn't happen today is they had a big sign put on across the street where the grass company building was being uh um uh built and when they came in for their partners meeting they dropped it down and it was some very unflattering photos of the trojan horse <laughs> so love there it, was man. a lot of there, there was a lot of camaraderie back in the day that it somehow seems a little bit lost uh, in the in the real estate business so i hope this will bring it all back i hope so i hope so well man i really appreciate you spending some time with us i'm a big fan of you and your father and what you've done and you know your your podcast has been awesome the real market so for those of you that don't know Chris hosts his podcast, The Real Market, with some great, great uh, guests and legends in real estate and top people. But I appreciate it. Be safe. Be healthy. Hopefully, we'll connect soon in real in real life in the non-virtual world. I look forward to it. Thank you very much, and uh, you know, really appreciate it. This is fun. All right, Chris. Stay. Hey, I got to thank Chris Rising for spending time and really giving us some nuggets, some wisdom there. You can listen to that over and over and pull out different things. I uh, want to make sure if you ever want to find Chris, you can find uh, Chris Rising at Rising Realty. 
risingrealty.com. They own a ton of buildings downtown. Also his podcast, The Real Market. Check that out. A lot of top people in commercial real estate are on that. Uh, you can always find find me at The Deal Pod or at Danny Brown LA. Uh, we really appreciate you tuning into this. If you can, give us a five-star review on iTunes or YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcasts and uh, leave a comment for us if you like what you hear. We're really appreciative to people tuning in during this time. We hope everyone's safe, their families are healthy, and we look forward to connecting with you guys soon. All right, take care. Watch me, I'm gonna be the best.